Psalm 19. We'll read the psalm together. The psalmist writes, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock. And my Redeemer. Well, let's seek this same God together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to express your greatness. But every effort we give, Lord, we feel it even before it comes out of our mouth. It's just so short of what it ought to be, it falls so short of what you deserve. But we thank you that you brought us into your family when we were enemies. You loved us when we cared nothing for you. Your love for us had to have all of its reasons drawn from within your perfect, infinite character. None of them were because we were lovely or better or special people. But if you have loved us when we were your enemies, doubting you, using even religion as a cloak for self-centeredness and self-indulgence. Oh, God, would you not accept our feeble efforts now that we are your children? Every Christian here this evening, having been brought out of the courtroom and into the family room, brought from the camp of enemy into the camp of friend and subject, worshiper and child, We come and worship you for sending your son to become our defender, to be the ransom for our sins, our representative, our mediator, the firstborn from the dead, but not the last. And we thank you, God, for sending your spirit, just as we sang, that he still teaches, you still speak, and you speak through this book in a way that changes lives. It's inexplicable to an unbeliever. It doesn't make sense. Why would a person give up anything for words written on the pages of an ancient book? But everyone who has heard your voice and believed. God, they have tasted and seen that you're good. So we pray that what you've begun, you would continue. We pray that you would grow believers, protect them. Take us by the hand when we drift. Like the psalmist says, seek us. Come, God, find us. There are times when our hearts are so cold and our minds are so surrounded by confusing lies and half-truths and doubts from within and without that we feel like a child lost in a dangerous place. So we pray that at times like that, you would come find us. And God, we pray for those believers who 
face very serious health issues. We pray for people in this little church with health issues. That the difficult questions and the sleepless nights and the doctor's visits and the treatments, you would use all of that to do their soul everlasting good. The kind of good that one day they would be able to look back and say that it was well worth passing through the dark valley because you were with them. We do pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word and that you would knit our hearts together to fear your name, to stand in awe of who you are, to lay aside day by day our scanty thoughts of you, our small little bits and pieces of theology that we think that we figured you out. Give us childlike hearts to be amazed at you again, to be captivated. You are so far above our highest thoughts and imaginations. You are far above our best descriptions, but you are not above our hearts. Love. So stoop down tonight and teach us, we pray, for your name's sake. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, actually, tonight I want us to pick up with the theme that we left off with Sunday morning. And so let me just back up for a couple of minutes and hit that. We talked about the fact that in following Jesus Christ, one of the, one of the fundamental things that we've got to get in our head is that we follow him by following the same map that he followed, the Bible. His was the Old Testament, of course. And that aspect of the Old Testament, which, which does not change, the descriptions, the, you know, the, the unfolding of the character of God through all those wonderful ways, but also the moral law, the, the kind of law that doesn't alter, that nothing can alter it because it's, a, it's an expression of God's perfection. What's right and what's wrong on planet Earth What's really right and wrong is right and wrong because of who God is. He is the standard of moral purity and straightness and truthfulness. So we use the same map. Now, of course, you remember the two illustrations. Our map is a little different, not a different road. Okay, it's not after the cross we don't have a different path. You know, obedience is not optional now. But the path is, uh, the map has much more detail in your hands than it ever had in Jesus of Nazareth's hands or any Old Testament saint or New Testament saint. So if you think of your Google Maps, you can, you know, you pull it up on your phone and then you can zoom in. Same road, same, same directions, for all saints throughout all time, what pleases and doesn't please the Lord. But you have a lot of detail that they didn't have. You have the example of Christ. You have the teaching of Christ, which removed so many confusing layers of religion that the Jews had heaped on the law. And, of course, you have the New Testament epistles, where these writers take the great realities of God's purity and the realities of the of the the work of Christ in the gospel, and they apply those to everyday life to people who, for the most part, many of them had grown up in pagan households. So they're, they're just starting at, you know, ground zero. You have the same map, but you also have the same way of responding to the map. So to follow Jesus Christ doesn't just mean to be obedient. It means you want to be obedient as you watch how your Lord was obedient when he was here. And that will mean that you want to respond to the word of God in the way he responded to the word of God because he was a true human. And so he had to use the same things you have to use, study and time and memorization and uh, asking godly older believers. Same map. Same way. But that leads us to the question, well, exactly how did Christ do that? You know, especially in those years, zero through or 
you know, birth through 30, how did he, appropriate to his age, how did he respond to his father's word? In his 20s, in his teens, as a, as a child, how did he respond to God's word? And are, are you really expected to follow that pattern if you don't know what the pattern is? We know that there isn't a fifth gospel. There isn't a gospel that, that gives us the first 30 years of Jesus' life and says, now you, you see the, the other gospels focus on the ministry of Christ, but here's a gospel that gives you all these details of the first 30 years. And I suppose we all would feel naturally that we would be really better off if God had given us five gospels. I mean, if you had a gospel that said on Tuesdays, Jesus memorized this verse and on Wednesdays, he would read a couple of chapters from the Psalms. And this was Jesus's favorite read through the Old Testament in a year plan. And this is how he took notes. And um, this is if, if God would have given that to you, I suppose that we all would have been tempted to think that if you just mimicked the things that he did, if you read as many chapters as Jesus did a day, that, you know, then you would be godly. But of course, it goes much deeper than that. It is purposeful that God does not explain to us exactly how Jesus read the Bible every day as a teenager or in his 20s. What we have is something more valuable than that direct look into the example of Jesus Christ. And we know we have something more valuable because if looking directly at the life of Jesus Christ, if having a gospel that contained all of that would have been better for you, then the father would have given it to you. So what did he give you? Well, I think we, we have what we can call not a direct look into the, you know, the biography of how Jesus actually read his Bible, but we have an indirect look at the issues that are much more significant for you if you're going to follow his pattern. And the indirect glances come when we look at passages in, passages in Scripture where God explains how it pleases him for men and women and young people to respond to his word or to listen to him. And when you read those passages and you see God speaking of what is the right way to listen to him, then you realize, well, Jesus as a true human would have done that. And he would have done that perfectly. You can't imagine any Old Testament description of a worshiper being attentive to God and responsive to God in a way that pleases God. You can't imagine those descriptions not also showing up in the life of the, of the obedient one whose every response to the Father was perfectly pleasing. So that brings us to Psalm 119, which I mentioned at the end of Sunday's sermon. And Psalm 119, uh, among other things, does give us a picture. It's a very active picture. It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's not like a sketch. It's more like black and white movie. It's, it's dynamic. We see this constant exchange between the psalmist and God with an open Bible. And there are requests and there are pleadings. There are expectations. But then there are also statements about the word of God. How does the psalmist think of God's word? And there are responses. Very concrete, simple responses to the God who gave the psalmist, a book. In this psalm, of course, we, we see these things in just painted in kind of in front of our eyes in a very ideal way. And we won't always walk the path that the psalmist is describing. We will at times drift. The psalm, Psalm 119, talks about that. The last verse of the psalm talks about a drifting. There are a few verses in Psalm 119 that talk about the sinfulness of the psalmist and the need for forgiveness and mercy and restoration. But those are few. In this psalm that describes the kind of responses that please God, how to respond to his word, surely you could understand that in the life of 
Jesus of Nazareth, every pleasing response that's mentioned in Psalm 119 would have been in his life. So Psalm 119, minus the few exceptions where sin is mentioned, could be read as a portrait of the response of the perfect Son of God while on earth. How did Jesus treat his Bible? How did Jesus listen and respond to his Father? So that's what we want to pick up with tonight because I find that very helpful. Otherwise, it seems to me that, you know, all we have is we have a few limited statements about Jesus uh, delighting in the, in, to do the Father's will, determined to do the Father's will. We know from the New Testament examples in the Gospels that Jesus memorized Scripture, studied it, understood what it meant, you know, didn't just give quotes, but understood what the writers were talking about, loved to obey it. But beyond that, or maybe we could say beneath that, what was the pattern that brought and fueled that kind of life. And I know that we will not walk that path as Christ walked it perfectly, but it is the same path, same map. Well, when we look at Psalm 119, I suggested that you might want to just read through it yourself and see and just make a list for yourself of all the responses to the word that you find in that psalm. And there are just too many for us to even list tonight, uh, but I want to give you a sample of them, and I've kind of bundled them together into categories. You certainly don't have to do it this way, but I really want to stress that it would be much more beneficial for you if you made your own list rather than you getting my list or getting a list from a commentary. 176 verses, it doesn't take too long. To make a list on one side of the page of every response to the word of God that the psalmist mentions in his life. And then you can kind of group them together however you wish. Well, let me give you just a sample of these. And I want to give them in a kind of a particular order. Again, it's not carved in stone. It doesn't have to be the order you look at them. But I just want to read these off, and I'm not going to read all the verses they come from. I'm just going to read the words that, in the New American Standard, that described his responses. The first category, those verses which describe the psalmist believing the Word of God and trusting the Word of God. And I hope you understand that that is where it would have to begin. You you can't begin... The, you know, as, as we think of our responses to God's word, you can't begin with walking the word of God because there are a lot of things that lead to that. And one of them, and I think really one of the primary ones, is that we are those who believe that what we're reading is not a collection of clever fables, but these are words that God gave. And because they're words that God gave, we believe And we trust them, no matter what. But that is not effortless. And when the psalmist, if you read through the psalm and you notice each verse that mentions these, it's not an effortless thing for the psalmist to believe. Do you think that it was an effortless thing for the Lord Jesus to believe the word of God, to read his Old Testament and trust it? Do you think it was effortless? Obviously, he did it sinlessly, but did he do it effortlessly? And I think the answer to that has to be no. It required effort in the same way it requires effort for you, except, of course, he has no sinful heart, no sinful mind, you know, throwing extra hurdles in the way. Jesus of Nazareth grows up in a family that goes to church, that reads the scripture, but he could see in his own family, in Mary, in Joseph, his stepfather, in his, you know, his siblings, He could see contradictions, which is true. What's true? What we're reading or what I'm seeing? He goes to church. He sees hypocrisy. Well, what's true? He reads wonderful passages about the the happiness of those that walk with God. And then you look in the world and sometimes the believers seem very sad. Well, which is true? And like Abraham and like every believer since, 
Jesus of Nazareth had to choose to believe what he read in his Bible, no matter what things appeared to be on the outside. So that's our first category. Reading through, I can see the psalmist has to believe and trust. And I realize our Lord had to believe and trust. And he did it perfectly. But because he believes and trusts, there's a second category. And this I lumped together all those many passages in Psalm 119 that describes him loving or delighting in. And the Hebrew word delight there is also the word for enjoy. All the words that talk about how much he delights in the word of God, how much he loves the word of God. And can you not see that so clearly in the life of Jesus? The Bible was to him his father's word, and it was everything good and pure, everything perfect. It was the finest gold. It was the sweetest honey. It was light in a very dark world. It was a path before his feet that led to unstained, enviable happiness. When you see the descriptions of the word of God in Psalm 119, where the psalmist describes you know, all the benefits of the Bible, you can read those and you can see that Jesus of Nazareth would have been perfectly in agreement with that. Not theoretically, you know, like if we were to go through and I would say, well, let's just start with Chuck and Elizabeth and we'll work our way down to Ron and then we'll go across. Uh, do you believe that the, that the Bible is better than gold? And, you know, and we would say, well, yes, I totally agree with that concept, but that's very different than waking up in the morning and thinking that someone has found a vein of gold in your backyard and you're allowed to get as much as you want. This vein of gold, though, is nothing compared with the scriptures. I find it sometimes hard to be more thrilled to read my Bible than to grab my breakfast. But the Bible is sweeter than honey. And so to love and to enjoy and to, like, to delight ourselves in the word, our Savior did it. Because he delighted in it, because he believed it, another group of words, he waited for or he hoped in. The English words are interchangeable with the Hebrew word there. He panted for. These are all descriptions in the New American Standard he longed for. So this, this category of this earnest expectation, this longing, I believe that this is the word of God. I love this. I delight in it. So I wait for it. I, you know, I yearn for it. I long for it. And verse, I think it's 131. I pant after. Think of uh, Psalm 42, when it talks about the deer being chased and it pants for the streams of water. My soul hungers, my soul thirsts for the commands of God, not just the promises. I want to know the I want to know the path. You know, if you think of panting, gulping air, you know, not the normal breathing we do, but the kind of breathing we do when we exercise a little in the summer and then we stop for a second and we say, let me catch my breath. You know, sometimes I will occasionally jog with one of the men in the church. And so sometimes I'll jog with um, Brandon Beck and I thought I can keep up with Brandon. I mean, Brandon's a tank. He's not a gazelle. So, you know, some people just forget it. But I actually did beat Heather Dooley one time right after Okay, no, right before, right before the birth of her third kid, she was pushing a stroller with two kids in it, and she was like a watermelon, and I beat her, and I was like, whoa, you know, take a selfie. That is actually true. Um, so I go running with Brandon, and I think, okay, I, I can keep up with Brandon. I can't keep up with Brandon. He just chugs along. And so if you ever run with people who are faster than you, what do you do? So we're trying to talk about spiritual things, but it's hard to talk and breathe at the same time if you're out of shape. So I'm, I'm just gulping air and I'm saying, hey, Brandon, uh, why don't we just pull it back a little? And he's like, oh, sorry. But it's the same with every person I've ever run with that's faster than me. They pull it back for like one minute and then they forget and then they zoom in front. So I 
It's just miserable. Gulping, panting, gulping air. Is that how your soul is for the word of God? It is how Jesus's was. Longing for, waiting for, hoping for, thirsting for. And because of that, we come to another category. There's a whole category that describes guarding it and treasuring it up. So keeping his commandments. It's a Hebrew word for guarding it, not just doing them, but as you're learning them, protecting them and observing his commandments. And again, it's the same Hebrew word for keeping. It means to watch and to learn and don't let yourself forget. But then there are other words in this group like treasuring them, hiding them in your heart, returning frequently and meditating on them. As the God-man studies his Bible year by year, month by month, day by day, throughout his life on earth, he guards what the Father is teaching him from this book. He treasures it. He stores it. He protects it. Think of the parable of the four seeds, I mean the four soils and the, and the seed of the word. So the sower throws the seed out and some seed falls in this place and some in others. But do you remember that some seed falls in the um, thorny soil and immediately it seems to take root and you think a great plant's going to come up, but all of these weeds that are around it choke it out. Other seed falls on the hard path and because it can't get down into the earth, then the birds come and just peck it away. How many times have you read your Bible in the morning and by afternoon, having not guarded it, not found a way to kind of store it, to treasure it, it's been pecked away. And if someone were to say to you, so what did the Lord teach you this morning? You would think, um, um, oh gosh, I can't even hardly remember. None of us has perfect memories. I know we all like to say, oh, my memory's bad. I, I'm old now, my memory's bad. Or I'm young, my memory's bad. I have to, I just never read my Bible without a pen and a notebook just to be able to write something down, to treasure it, to hide it. Christ did that. As he learned, he treasured these things, guarded them, kept them from being snatched away from him, memorized them, meditated on them. These are all very simple, but, you know, very conscious choices you have to make. Let me give you another category. He obeys them. He walks in them. He does not stray from them. He even says, I hasten to, the, to do your commandments. I hasten to walk this path. Can you see the Lord Jesus? He believes he loves, he guards and treasures what he's learning, and he makes sure that he walks in them. The very simple picture we've talked about so many times, all the little choices of life are like the little steps of your day. It's not the really big major decisions that we have such trouble with. It's, it's the it's the thousand things we choose to do today, the, the way we respond, the way we look with our eyes, the way we listen with our ears, uh, the way we direct our thoughts, how we eat, how we dress, how we talk to the kids, how we drive to work. It's all those things. And the, the precepts and the commands and the word of God laid a path. And Jesus believing that path, loving it, treasuring it, walked it and did not stray from it. Let me give you another category. He continued to remember. He did not forget. Or another passage, he kept the precepts of God before his eyes. Well, that's what the psalmist says. Can you see Christ doing that? He does not simply learn something from the father at age 10 
And then by age 11, he's forgotten and kind of moved on. But having believed and longed for and treasured and obeyed, he reminds himself. It's not something that was done in the past. For our Lord, this kind of statement that sometimes we make would never have come from his lips. He would never have to look back on his Christianity, on his walk with the Lord, with his father and say, I do remember a time where I was closer to God than I am now. One reason is that in Psalm 119, we find a whole collection of words to describe the ongoing habitual reminding of himself or setting in front of his eyes the commands of God. There is another one, and I want us to save it for the end. Now, let me suggest a practical exercise for us, and it's based in that statement that I think we should make our own list. If you were to go through Psalm 119 and make a list of all the responses to the Bible that you find there, and then kind of just put them on a bookmark or something, you know, a sheet of paper that you keep with your Bible, If you, as you approach the Bible, would simply take one of those and in prayer, talk to the Father about that. Father, the psalmist says that this is a pleasing way to respond to you, to your book. And I know that my Lord chose that path. And then stop and think about what it was like for the human, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, in his earthly life, to have done whatever that verse is talking about from Psalm, whatever that response is that you've chosen. Now, to do that, this may sound a little confusing. Don't let me lose you. But there are a few things that I would suggest, and let me just give you three. And these are taken from a list that's longer in a book by Isaac Ambrose, the Puritan, big fat book called Looking Unto Jesus. At the end of each chapter or section, he gives some ways that we can look unto Jesus. So he describes some aspect of Christ and what he does. And then he says now in the application of this, and he gives like seven things. I'll give you three. Consider him as acting this way. Love him as he acts this way and imitate or follow him as he acts this way. Now, Ambrose gave a lot more, but I'm going to give you those three. So here's what I would suggest. If you make a list of the responses to the word of God in Psalm 119, and you have them on your left-hand side of the page, on your right-hand side of the page, you could simply put, consider him responding this way, love him, or delight in him responding this way, imitate him, follow him responding this way. Now, if you want the full list, I can shoot you... Um, the list in, um, in an email, but we can just have those three. So you wake up in the morning and you grab your cup of coffee and, you know, and you go and you get alone and you've opened the Bible to where you're going to be reading that day. And you have that piece of paper in your Bible and you look and you pick one response. And then you think about what would it have been like for your Lord as a as a 15-year-old, as a 20-year-old, as a 30-year-old, to have responded to the word like that response says he did. And you can consider him in that. Think about that. Love him. You know, adore the Savior who did that. And imitate him. Let me give you, let me give you an example. We'll just walk through one verse. So let's, let's think about the word hope or wait on the Lord. And this shows up in a number of places. If you have your Bibles, open to Psalm 119. Look at verse 49. Some of the translations will say hope and some will say wait because even though it's the same Hebrew word, that you get the picture. A person is waiting with hopefulness. All right, not just kind of waiting. There's the kind of waiting that we do when we can't do anything else. Like, Is it ready yet? No, you just have to be patient and wait. That's not what he's doing. There's that hope-filled waiting, that yearning. So Psalm 119, look at verse 49. 
And I shall lift my hands to your commandments. I think, wait, that's verse 48. Verse 49. Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Or another way to translate that, in which you have made me wait. So there's a wonderful example. The psalmist comes to God and says, God, I'm asking you to remember your word. I'm remembering your word. You remember your word because it's the very word in this book that you've caused me to hope in. I I don't have any hope other than this. Can you, in your mind, consider Jesus as a true human praying that? I can. How many places in his life you know, would the, wonder, would, would the wonderful verses, the messianic promises of the Old Testament seem to be in complete contradiction to the present experience? You know, like in John chapter 6, when all the crowds walk away from him. Think of Isaiah 49 in that prayer when he says to the Father, you said I would be this. I would, you know, you said I would... Bring your glory to the nations, but I have labored in vain and for nothing. That's the Messiah. It feels as if it's for nothing, Father. Now, there's no sin in that brokenhearted complaint. But that would be a wonderful time in my mind for the Lord as he opened the word of his father to go to that verse and say, oh, Father, these people. They read their Bibles and they're clueless. They don't know that what they read about in the Old Testament is happening right now. But you remember your word to me because you caused me to hope in it. Consider Christ in those difficult, dark moments waiting for the word of God. Now, that could mean waiting for the father to make something clear. What, what do I do next, Father? I'm waiting on you. I'm not rushing ahead. But that could also have that idea that I've been talking about of waiting for the Father to do what he said he would do. According to the integrity of your character, God, those things we read in Scripture that we have a right to expect would be happening now. We're not talking about something, you know, in the, in the distant future. Now. God, I need that word to be accomplished. I am longing for it, hoping in it. I'm waiting on you. There are so many other passages where it shows up. I'll read them, but we won't stop and consider each one. But look at verse 74. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. What a wonderful statement. I said I wouldn't say anything. I lied. What a wonderful statement for you, for for the Savior. Here he is in a difficult place, but he continues to wait on the Lord. So let every weak, fearful believer see the Messiah in the hardest of times, still hoping in his father's word. And they will be helped, not hurt. Same prayer for us. God, help me to wait and hope in your word and not choose a a compromise in, in my decisions just because it's hard, but to really trust that you will do what you said you would do and let other believers who see you help me. Let them be helped too. That was verse 74. Look at verse 81. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your words. Again, the agony. Oh, God, I am longing to see you complete the great rescue that you say you will complete. And I will wait for you and not run somewhere else. That was verse 81. Look at verse 114. You are my hiding place and my shield. I Wait for your word. Look at 147. I rise before dawn. 
and cry for help. I wait for your words. I mean, I think we could just stay there for a year. One response seen from various angles in one chapter. And we can stop and do that first thing. Consider, consider your Lord in this activity. How he perfectly hoped in, waited on God to give his word or to do his word. And you have a number of specific kind of scenarios there that you can see. And all of them are in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So considering Christ. Second, loving or adoring or worshiping. He does this perfectly. No one else ever has. Can you not love the one who perfectly waited on the word of the father and never compromised even when it looked like he was backed into a corner and because of that perfect waiting and hoping and the life that flowed out of it he not only gives you an example a path but he provides a righteousness for you you and I who have never waited perfectly so we adore him third you consider him doing this you adore you Delight in him doing this. He's your savior. And then you imitate him. Why not pray? Jesus, whatever I'm about to read today, I want to be so filled with the hope of these truths that even when things are difficult and I'm impatient, that I will wait and hope in what you say. And I will refuse every other option, even if you delay And I will look for you to do what you said you would do. And I will not leave the path of obedience just because it's an age-long moment. So, Jesus, you did that perfectly. Teach me. I want to do that. So we just chose one word, one type of response in Psalm 119. Run through a few examples. Think of how Christ would have done that. Adore him. Imitate him. And then open your Bible and read it. I'm reading in 1 Thessalonians right now. And Paul says things like, I didn't just bring you the gospel, but because of my love for you, I was happy to give you my life as well. There's a lot to apply there, isn't there? So I can look at a response from Psalm 119. I can consider and adore and follow Christ. And then when I read that in 1 Thessalonians, I can ask, so am I going to handle this map the way he handled his map? Now, I left one out because I want us to just quickly think about it because it describes what's coming up and I don't want to be very long with it. But it's the word seek. If you read through Psalm 119, He mentions in multiple places that he will seek the commands of God or seek the statutes or testimonies or precepts. And that goes beyond, in my mind, it it says things that no other word in Psalm 119 says. You know, we can think of loving, loving, believing, trusting, delighting, walking in, storing up, guarding, holding before your eyes. You can even think of longing for which is the same, it's in the original language, is a very close meaning. Seeking the commands, longing for the commands. But there's something different, isn't there, from just longing to seeking, even in our English word. It just carries a different picture, and I think it's so helpful for this church, for us. It is one thing to say, I am willing to walk the path. I'm willing to guard So Chuck or John or one of the other teachers in the church are, you know, they talked about this and and I I saw, yeah, that was, I hadn't thought of that. So I'm going to guard that. I'm going to try to treasure it up and I'm willing to keep it and walk in it. Well, that's good, but it's, it's something more. 
for the belief and the love and the treasuring to lead to the act of seeking. I am walking in obedience. Psalm 119, verse 44 uh, and 45, I believe. Let me make sure. Yes, look at that. Psalm 119, 44 and 45. Notice that he's already walking in obedience, but he is determined to find new commands or new precepts, new parts of the map that he's not known before. So he can walk those too. Verse 44, so I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty for I seek your precepts. God, I am studying. I am investigating the Hebrew word very care, very clear to carefully search, to investigate into something, to get to the bottom of it. I remember reading that Jonathan Edwards, one of his basic principles for whatever he was studying was to try as much as he could to get to the very bottom of every issue he was studying. To carefully search the scriptures for God's precepts. To investigate what does this command entail. And it also is used for uh, inquiring about or asking about. You think of Jesus as a 12-year-old in the temple talking to the teachers. For most of my life, I just thought that that was a passage where he was there wowing them, giving them all the answers, you know. And they were like going, oof, I didn't know that answer. Man, where'd that kid get taught, you know. But I don't think that's primarily, I'm sure they were wowed, but I don't think that's why he was there. I think as a 12-year-old, he is asking the godliest, oldest most knowledgeable believers in his day. He is discussing scripture with them and learning from them. To inquire, to ask. You can ask older Christians. You can ask church leaders. You can ask people who have been dead for 300 years. You get their book and you read and, you know, you read a book on prayer. It's like sitting down with them saying, so what about this prayer stuff? And you can ask. But don't, be an, uh, don't inquire like I inquire in my normal way of asking for things at the house. So here's how it normally looks. I, I'm having to go somewhere and I say, Misty, Sarah, have you guys seen? All right. Like I say that 100 times a day, 20 times a day. Have you seen my such and such? And all, sometimes I get the response, which is a reminder. They'll say, have you even looked for it yet? I'm thinking, well, why would I do that? Because you two know where it is. So we can just save a lot of my time if you just go ahead and tell me. Do not ask like that. Search. Seek the precepts, the guiding principles, the moral commands of God. Seek the path of obedience that pleases God. From Genesis to Revelation, seek it. Seek it. Investigate it. And when you've done all you can, inquire. Ask others, how do you apply this? How, what, what do you think of this? Do you know someone who's written on this? Frances Havergal, in her book, Royal Commandments, talks about the fact that we are willing to keep the commands that have already been handed to us, but we're not so keen to seek out new ones. And she, she asks why. And she writes this, and I paraphrased a little bit of it. Perhaps we're afraid of seeing something which might be hard to keep. It seems as if it might be enough to just try to keep what commandments we already have seen without seeking for more commandments. And we may feel that seeking more to keep would only involve us in heavier obligations and in more failure to keep them. At times, we almost wish we had never seen some of the commands. She asked this question, does not a loving child like to find out what its dear parent wishes him or her to do? Does it not feel that it did not know? Uh, th does it not feel sorry that it did not know what the parent wished in time to 
do it or to avoid doing something they didn't wish. And, and I know that, you know, if we have kids who are young, you're like, what kid, what kid wakes up and thinks, I just wish I knew more of what mom and dad wanted me to do today. Let's think of, think of an adult son or daughter and an aging parent. And you love them. You know, you're grown up enough to know how much they, how much cost they paid to love you all those years. And you want to make their life happy. And it grieves you if they won't tell you what would have been pleasing to them. You think, I would have done that a hundred times over. Why didn't you tell me? So she goes on to say, how little we must love God's will if we would rather not know it, lest it clash with our own. Well, we're going to be seeking. The reason I threw that in at the end is because in the coming months, we're going to be seeking his commands, his precepts, his guiding principles. As we think of what it would be like to have a heart walking in harmony with God in his moral commands, like our Savior did. So while we're looking at Jesus, we are wanting to make sure that we're studying the map and seeking ever clearer new paths that we were ignorant of. Well, may the Lord help us. I think we'll pray and be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the path, the map. We thank you for all the additional clarity that we have from Christ in the New Testament, the wonderful blooming, the fruition of that old covenant and all its promises. And we thank you that the, that the road hasn't altered. Whatever we had to do today as an expression of obedience to you, God, every Christian today walked on a path that every other Christian has walked in. The footprints of the people that we admire from centuries past are on that path. We're grateful that Christianity is not a bundle of fine concepts that leaves us unaltered and empty, just sitting or walking on a treadmill, but never really arriving anywhere. But please help us for love of our Savior to see in these responses his beauty, his greatness, and to be enticed to plead with him to teach us to respond just like he did. We thank you for the mercy that is there for the times when we fail to respond and that you don't throw us out of your family, but pick us up and teach us again. But God, most of all, we plead, will you help us to seek, to be so convinced of their value that we search for new commands, that we might walk near Christ in new ways, pleasing you in new ways, loving others in ways we've never done before for the glory of your name and the happiness of our lives. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.